A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Okay, so man sits in front of a camera in his own home, trying to somehow summarize who he is, all that had happened to him over 14 years. Hi, everyone. My name is Mohammed Ursulahi. I'm from Mauritania. It's hard, right? Like, do people even know where Mauritania is? He tries another take. I am from Mauritania. In case you don't know what Mauritania is, which is very likely, it's in West Africa. He continues at length. Doesn't work. This is too long, too preachy. Another take. Hi, everyone. Peace be with you. My name is Mohammed Walsalah. I was kidnapped in 2001 and spent more than 14 years mostly in Guantanamo Bay. During those 14 years in Guantanamo, the United States government came to believe that he recruited into al-Qaeda men who later became hijackers in the 9-11 attacks. But it never charged him with that or anything else. Mohammed Uslahi was tortured, on one occasion beaten quite badly. He was kept awake by loud music, made to stand for hours at a time, left shackled in a cold room. The torture stopped after a few months, but they kept him for another 13 years. A judge ruled that the government could prove that he had been in touch with people in al-Qaeda and sometimes helped them out, but failed to show more than that and didn't have enough evidence to hold him. So finally he was released. And... If you've only heard of one Guantanamo detainee, this man, Mohamed Salahi, might be that guy. He wrote a book, originally called Guantanamo Diary, published while he was still locked up, became a cause for human rights groups and celebrities. There's a movie about him with Jodie Foster and Benedict Cumberbatch and Tahir Rahim. These days, uh, he is living in Mauritania, maybe the most famous person in the country. People stop him on the street and at the beach. He married an American human rights lawyer, had a son, is writing another book, just published a novel. And the purpose of this video he was shooting was very uh, particular. He wanted to issue an invitation to everyone who knew him at Guantanamo Bay, the guards, the interrogators, everybody. Some of you guys mistreated me, even tortured me. But I'm telling you wholeheartedly that I have forgiven you. I hold no grudge against you guys. Honest to God. I invite all of you to my house so we could drink tea and talk about the past. Thank you very much, and God bless you. This invitation to tea, it's also at the very end of his book. And for a long time, nobody took him up on it. But then, by chance, one of the guards from Guantanamo noticed on Facebook that Mohamedou was out and messaged him. The guard's name is Scott, though uh, Mohamedou knew him as Master Jedi, Guards didn't use their real names. They wore masks. Apparently, there's a whole Star Wars thing going on. There was Master Yoda, Master Luke. Anyway, Scott, Jedi, was really young at the time. Got sent to Guantanamo and was assigned right away to Mohamedou, their most high-profile detainee. I remember going into that building scared to death because I was expecting someone about 8 feet tall, 200 pounds, and I didn't know what I was getting into, you know, as a young kid. But I open up that screen, and I see this skinny little tan man laying on a bed who looked like he didn't have a clue what was going on. 
this audio that you're hearing was collected as part of this really remarkable documentary uh, by a filmmaker who made it his mission to track down some of the guards and interrogators Mohamedou was reaching out to with his invitation to tea to see if they would be willing to talk to him. The filmmaker who uh, did this is John Getz. And back when Mohamedou was at Guantanamo, John was a reporter. He was living in Germany, writing for a German audience. And he started writing about Mohamedou because Mohamedou was one of the few people at Guantanamo with a German connection. Mohamedou had lived in Germany for 11 years. And then when you look at his story, his story was just incredible. You know, he was the son of a camel herder, you know, as part of a family with 12 kids who ends up with this elite scholarship in Germany and becomes an engineer here, a successful engineer at one of the the leading high-tech companies of Germany. And then at the same time, he's accused of having recruited the pilots for the September 11th attacks. After the United States concluded that it did not have the evidence for a case against Mohamedou and released him, John went to see him in Mauritania, meet him for the first time in person. And he asked about that invitation. And I was wondering, was it a real invitation, or did he really mean that? And did he? He did. He was more serious than I thought he'd be. When I met him, he had, you know, it was very recent that he had gotten out. And in many ways, he was just kind of ripped out of the environment he had been in for 14 years. And he wasn't finished with what happened to him. John says that Mohamedou's lawyers told Mohamedou, absolutely do not try to track down your former captors yourself for this invitation. It'll look like you're stalking them. But Mohamedou asked John, as an American journalist, could he try to find these people? He'd seen a TV documentary where John had done exactly that kind of tracking down for his story. And John said yes. He thought it could be a good film. And then spent two years searching for people Mohamedou had known in Guantanamo. He actually spoke with about a dozen of them Three were willing to talk to Mohamedou all these years later about what had gone down. Two of those were people that John found. And then there was Scott, who, like I said, showed up out of the blue on his own. Well, Scott was one of Mohamedou's guards in the period while Mohamedou was being tortured. And does that mean that that he saw the torture or participated in the torture? No, Scott says he did not see the torture. Scott says he w- he did not physically abuse Mohamedou, but Scott says it was his role to soften up Mohamedou. That means Scott prevented Mohamedou from ever praying, gave meals at random times. Sometimes Mohamedou only got 60 seconds to eat or take a shower. Pillow was Mohamedou's nickname at Guantanamo because after they tortured him and broke him, the first comfort they gave him as a reward was a pillow. Mohamedou's torture ended after a few months. Scott was there for about a month of that. And after the torture ended, everything between them was very different. For starters, uh, they were allowed to talk to each other, and they talked a lot. Scott guarded him in 12-hour shifts for about a year more. So in that period, they got to know each other quite well, and they played chess together. Apparently, Mohamedou won every time they played. Um, You know, they watched films together and ended up, at the end of this, having quite, you know, kind of a good connection. I know we barbecued a few times, gave him some of the food. Uh, We used to mess with him a little bit because where his toilet was on the floor, there was a hole in the back, and you could be like, pillow, pillow, and talk to him from that. And he'd be like, my toilet's talking. It wasn't nothing to harm with him. It was just us being bored at that time. So I would go back there and just be like, pillow, pillow at your toilet, you know. So to me, that was pretty comical. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. don't hate me for that one, but I thought it was funny. Scott told John that after he left Guantanamo, 
he would think about Muhammadu and dream about him. And back home in the States, at church, they gave a talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. They made him think that he should reach out. So when John was filming Scott in Kentucky, at one point John pulled out his iPhone and suggested they call Muhammadu right then. Two of Scott's kids were there. One was playing Minecraft. There was a bunch of pets around. And they got him on the phone. Hey, Pillow! Hey, watch your mouth before I tie you up. Huh? <laughs> uh, I got fat, man. Man, your beard. I like your beard, man. I like your haircut. I like that haircut. Thank you very much. You're shiny. That's automatic haircut. <laughs> watch your mouth before I tie you up. Yeah, that's the first thing he really says to him. So, I feel like I never really caused you any harm, but I wanted to seek forgiveness, you know, because as a kid, a 20-year-old kid, I didn't know what I was doing. You're right. Yeah. Mahmoud says you're right. But then he brings up how some of the guards used to make him take off his orange uniform and then use it to wipe down the entire cell, including the toilet, and then put the uniform back on. And how bad that felt. And I was so scared. And how in that cell... Oh, yeah, it was prayer. But Scott wouldn't let him pray. I remember one day I asked you, why do you prevent me from praying? Why do you prevent me from doing my fasting and so? And then you said, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe I go to hell for that. No, was that, was that me? <laughs> yeah, I think it was you. No. It, you always discuss about religion and so. Yeah, well, it's a big deal to me. But, uh... You know, now that I'm at church, you know, I realize that everyone has their own religion, you know? It, and, it's, and it's fine. It's totally acceptable. Correct. I have nothing against anyone else with a different religion. It doesn't bother me. Same God. Same God. Yep. You know, they talk for a few more minutes. It's not a, a long phone call. The line breaks down and freezes, like, right in the middle of the call. You might not say there's no harm done, but you lost 14 years. I think we're freezing up again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then they kind of reconnect and um, basically say goodbye. Well, look, I'm going to let you go to bed, and it was amazing talking to you. Yeah, it was like talking to an old friend again. It was awesome. I love you. Oh, wait, does Muhammadu say, I love you, man? He says, I love you, man, yeah. God, I miss that guy. Just talking to him for just right then, you know, brings all the emotions back, you know, just... I honestly do love that guy. You know, I think he's an amazing guy. Uh, don't know why he said it, but it just came over me, you know, just to know that still have that connection with someone is absolutely amazing. We're devoting the rest of our program today to two other calls, which go very differently from the one that you just heard with Scott. These two calls, they were with people who were way tougher on Muhammadu when he was locked up. These are people who interrogated him back then. These are people who have not softened towards him today. And what's so interesting about hearing these conversations is that Guantanamo 
has been such a black box for 20 years. And these conversations with Mohamedou Salahi, you'll hear, give this glimpse at how the Americans and the detainees interacted in this way that I for sure had never heard before. These conversations that are like sparring matches or, I don't know, mental chess games. From WBZ Chicago, this is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Okay, um, so before we get to these calls, because uh, this comes up in the calls, you need uh, to know a little bit about how Mohamedou ended up in Guantanamo in the first place. Well, from the point of view of the U.S. government, there were a lot of things that made Mohamedou suspicious. Again, this is journalist filmmaker John Getz. Number one, he had gone to Afghanistan uh, in the early 1990s and was actually a part of al-Qaeda at that phase and part of kind of the Osama bin Laden wing of the Mujahideen. You may remember back in the 1980s, the U.S. had supported the Mujahideen in their fight against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Mohamedou says that after he left Afghanistan in the early 90s, he broke with al-Qaeda. But his cousin became one of the top leaders of al-Qaeda. He even called, his cousin even called Mohamedou while he was in Germany from Osama bin Laden's satellite phone. Mohamedou also had contact with a bunch of people who ended up committing terrorist acts. Like, he was close friends with a man who later was connected to a synagogue bombing in Tunisia. He attended a mosque in Canada where a major terrorist plot was planned. He had um, at least one of the organizers of the 9-11 attacks stayed at his apartment in Duisburg um, in October 1999. Uh, Some say that even two of the hijackers were there with him that evening. And he kind of encouraged them to go to Afghanistan. But the fact that he had contact with all of these different people, um, all of these things together, you know, it's kind of like, you know, is there an explanation that's not ominous about Mohamedou? That was kind of like the position of the U.S. government at the time. Well, though that sounds pretty bad. Like, what does Mohamedou say about about that? Well, Mohamedou says in each and every case, he's he gives a simple explanation as for why it happened. I mean, he explains, for example, that his cousin called because he needed Mohamedou to transfer some money to, you know, a family member in Mauritania. Um, he says regarding the mosque in Canada that was involved in planning this, you know, terrorist attack, you know, that there were thousands of people that went to the mosque and he never met the guy who was involved who planned the attack. Okay, um, and so with that, I think that everybody is caught up with the basic facts about Mohamedou and we are ready to turn to Act 1. Act 1, Sydney. So um, the reporter for the rest of the hour is going to be Bastian Berbner, who's been on our show before. He's actually been working with John Getz for over a year. As John made his film, Bastian made a podcast series from the story for German Public Radio. Here's Bastian. After years of searching for Mohamedou's captors, John eventually got the tip about a woman who the person said probably knows more about Mohamedou's case than anyone else. That woman's name was Sydney. We're not using her last name here. Back in 2003, she was in military intelligence, working as an analyst on Mohamedou's case. John found her in a Texas suburb. She's a teacher now, and she agreed to talk. Mohamedou Slahi was the case of her life. In Guantanamo, she spent weeks questioning him, day in, day out, which is rare for someone who isn't an interrogator. I told 
uh, Slahi, I was like, I always call him my Gitmo boyfriend because I know more about him than anybody else that was in my life at that time. And yeah, so he was in front and on the cover of the Gitmo magazine or paper and he wrote on it, to my girlfriend, never forget our times together. Sydney was a young soldier when 9-11 happened. From then on, she says, her life only knew one purpose, to catch Al-Qaeda terrorists. She was at work before anyone else and stayed after everyone had left. No partner, no vacations, for 15 years. When I was in the thick of like AQ every day, I had pictures of dead guys next to pictures of my family on my desk. <laughs> and people were like, how do you have that? Wait, wait a minute, tell me about that. What yeah, kind some, of pictures? Oh, some were pretty gruesome. I remember one was, the dude's face literally was blown off. Like it's a reminder, like that dude would have killed me if given an opportunity and I'm doing everything I can to help track these people down so they don't get those opportunities to hurt me or my family. When John asked Sydney if she wanted to talk to Mohamedou, she was reluctant at first. But eventually she said yes. She still believes he was a key Al-Qaeda terrorist. Not a fighter or a suicide bomber or anything of that sort. No. Him being super intelligent, charismatic, speaking five languages, she thinks his job was more in the background recruiting terrorists for Al-Qaeda, including the 9-11 hijackers. He at least served 14 years in jail. That's something. Was it enough? Absolutely not. Not at all. What would have been enough? Personally? Um, death. For a while, I thought, she is so convinced of his guilt. She must have something to back this up. But I talked to her for hours about it, days. And the stuff she kept bringing up, it either didn't check out when I looked into it, or the judge had seen it too, and still ordered Mohamedou's release. Sydney worked on Mohamedou's case for years. She traveled to Mauritania, interviewed his ex-wife. She says in Guantanamo she pushed to have him isolated from the other detainees. But she never got a confession out of him. Now... 17 years later, she thought, he was a free man. Maybe she could finally get him to admit something. While the film crew sat up in her house, she started writing down the list of topics she wanted to cover with him. Okay. Like 9-11. She was sure he knew about the attacks beforehand. Then his cousin, the one who called him from Bin Laden's phone. And Canada. In late 1999, Mohamedou moved there for two months. Sydney was always convinced that he was the head of an Al-Qaeda cell there. <laughs> he gets so upset when you talk about Canada, and that's definitely one of the topics I'd really want to bring up with him. Meanwhile, John and I were with Mohamedou in Mauritania. John asked him what he remembered about Sydney. She was dying, thirsty, dying to find something. Because that was a very big thing in Guantanamo Bay if you break up a terrorist, quote-unquote. And she was like, oh my God, when is this going to happen? When am I going to get my break? I was her break. And not having that break in me, it was like, like, I would imagine it would have been very hard for her. But today, maybe I will give her the break. Why are you doing this? Uh... I just like, you know, some people like to watch horror movies. 
because the horror is not, they are not part of it. This is the first time I get to watch a horror movie and I'm not a part of it. I'm removed from her. She has no power over me. I just want to face her where she has no power over me. Absolutely no power. She can do nothing to me. That's to me, it's very important. Okay, we're ready. Are you ready, Mohammedou? I don't know, it depends. Oh, you don't know. What does it depend on? <laughs> First, I want to say to tell you that I'm so happy to see you again. And that I'm truly, truly sorry that Trump lost the elections. <laughs> you, you would have voted for Trump? Oh, Me, I don't know. I don't have the right to vote. No, would you have? If you could have, would you have voted no, no. for that I, man? I like to watch drama unfold. <laughs> I don't it, like to be a part of it. It was a drama. Oh, I, I think you lie on that part. You are always a part of drama, Mohamedou. I'm happy to see you too. I remember a few minutes into the call, John and I, we looked at each other like, what the hell is going on? It's almost like hostile flirting or something. Later she told us, that's how you have to talk to Mohamedou to get anything out of him. The first thing Sydney brings up is his book. In the original draft she saw, Mohamedou only briefly refers to her, and only by the nickname the guards gave her, TOF. It stands for Tons of Fun. Sydney says they called her that because she had a big chest. And I think you had me in there as TOF. That's Is that right? Correct. That's correct. Yes. So now, what, you what, already, did that, what did that stand for? Why did you send me? I don't know. This is one of the guard. Ah, he called okay, you that. Come on, let's hear it because I, I I heard what it was for, but I want I want you to tell me. I don't want to be kidnapped again. <laughs> I don't want to be kidnapped again. Dude, but I have. I'm not that powerful. <laughs> no, but no, 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 but oh, I will tell you something. Tell me what that means. Come so, on, you're not going to no, no, offend no, me. I already I know what it means. Sydney slips into the conversation <laughs> one of the topics she wanted to discuss: Mohammedu's cousin Abu Hafs, the high-ranking Al Qaeda guy. Today, Abu Hafs lives down the road from Mohammedu in a mansion. He was never captured. When I was in Mauritania, I visited him. And it was kind of mind-boggling to see that this key Al-Qaeda guy is not only free, but he's actually very well-respected in Mauritania, which is a partner of the United States. Because Abu Hafs, as smart in his own right, is not as smart as you. Um, have you talked to him? Uh, very little. Ah, very yeah? little. But... You are a very smart person. How could you make a judgment? You never met him. You never talked to him. I'm a little oh. bit... A judgment about his intelligence? Yes. May I challenge your idea? You uh, said, of course. You said course. he's not as smart as me. Yeah. So how could you make that judgment without being with him, interrogating him too? I, I never interrogated you. We always talked. Okay. Uh, you, you brought me tea. You brought me biscuit. We dated for a couple of times. Let's put it that way. So, however, I, I will challenge that idea and tell you, okay. I will say he's smarter than me because he had $25 million bounty on his head. I, ha I had $0 bounty on my head. He 
evaded American capture until American craziness evaporated. And they said he is not part of 9-11. And he snuck himself, smuggled himself through continents. And he's back in Mauritania living his life, you know, very well with his kid, with his family, without fear, without nothing. I would say, compared to some person who was kidnapped in a, a mafia-like operation, taken to Jordan, not to the United States, from Jordan to Afghanistan, Afghanistan to Guantanamo, I would say any given day, person number one, <laughs> win the smart card, any given day. <laughs> so that's my challenge. <laughs> okay. Well, I will say this. Okay. That. Okay. You, your purpose in Al-Qaeda was totally different than Abu Hafs. What do you thank call you, him, by the th way? Thank you, ma'am bin Laden, madam bin Laden. I did not know that. So uh, his purpose, totally different than your purpose for Al-Qaeda. Thank you for telling me about my purpose. Mom, I'm, you so, know this. I'm so, you know this, I'm Mom, so, uh, I'm so, uh, so uh, eager <laughs> to hear about this. Give me the update. <laughs> give me the update and give me my next, my next okay. mission too. While you are it. About an hour into the call, Sydney finally brings up Canada, the thing she says Mohamedou never wanted to talk about. She's convinced that he was involved in the Millennium Plot, a plan to blow up Los Angeles airport in late 1999. It failed when an Algerian man was arrested crossing the border from Canada with a car full of explosives. Before that, he had attended the same mosque in Montreal as Mohamedou, which is why the Canadian government started looking into Mohamedou. I always, I, okay, so this is going way, way back. Way, way back. And now, Canada. Your favorite place on earth, Canada. Canada. <laughs> Who would have thought? I know. Who would have thought this, this young Mauritanian kid would want to go and live in Canada after living yes. in Germany? Yes. Which Germany is fantastic. I love Germany. Yes. Oh, I agree with you. Fuck Canada. <laughs> I know you hated the Canadians. Not the, I love the Canadians. I hate what the government did to me. Yeah, I remember. I remember when you said... Sucking up to American government. I hate that. They were always up my ass. This is what you did. They were always up my ass. Yes. That's what you would say. Yes, why, absolutely. Why do you think they were always up your ass? I tell you why. Because American told them this is a very bad guy. He's a quote-unquote terrorist. Which is a fucking political term, you what, know? Like terrorist? Yes. It's not, it's not, you cannot, for instance, in the United States, you cannot say KKK is a terrorist group because it would not fly. They both say this is how their conversations went in Guantanamo. She would bring up topics she wanted answers on. He would swat her away. And this here is a good example. She asks about Canada, and within seconds he talks about the KKK and American bigotry. Eventually, Sydney steers the conversation back to Canada and to his cousin Abu Hafs, whose real name, by the way, is Mafus. Terrorism is We're a political about term. Why was Canada up your ass? Okay, I tell you why. Okay. Because when I came to Canada, mm-hmm. so I had a phone call with my cousin. He called yeah, me. That, do you ever the, just go, man, fuck you, Mafus? Look what you did to my life? Do you ever say that? 
Did you ever once think that? Every day. Yeah? Every day. A few hours before their call, a trailer for the movie about Mohamedou had been released. It's called The Mauritanian. Mohamedou insisted on showing it to Sydney. A lot of drama right there, Mohamedou. <laughs> someone who says Good they don't want to be in a lot of drama, that's a lot of drama. Thank you for congratulating me. <laughs> you know what bothers me about that, Mohamedou? And this is one of those things, these are one of those like, <clears throat> those unresolved issues that I wanted to talk to you about. <clears throat> yeah, you will get your chance, you know. But today I'm running the show. Okay. You've always run the show, just so you're aware. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. Mm, take it as you will. <laughs> how, how did you mean it? Um, I took... You've always had your way about you, Mohamedou. And your, your role was always the one of recruiter and, and you've done that successfully your entire life. So that's what I mean. Thank you so much. So I'm very sorry that you believe that I'm an evil man, but I can live with that because you have no power over me. No, because you won. To go back. Yeah, I agree with that. I go back to my home. I drink tea. I will sleep. I will watch movies. I will not go back to the cell. And you will not write a report. Muhammad al-Slahi didn't comment on him recruiting. God knows that I am not a recruiter for Al-Qaeda or any organization. That's between me and Allah and the people who believe me. And there is no fucking shred of evidence that the U.S. government could represent at the court of law that I was. And uh, that's Judge Robertson. He's not my brother. He's not a Muslim. He's not an Arab. He's not an African. He's a fucking American conservative. Judge Robertson was the person who ruled in Mohamedou's habeas case. I'm not sure, by the way, if he saw himself as a conservative. He looked at the evidence the U.S. government produced against Mohamedou and said, that's not enough to hold him. It actually took another six years for him to get released, because the Obama administration appealed the judge's ruling. He got out in 2016. So, okay, but I must have to say to that Canada? I must have to say that I have to go in very, in f very... In five minutes. What? Yes, I, I cannot stay longer because... Can you just let her, she has a few more points. I know, I know, but I don't have time to finish them. But you could organize another call, but I'm, I'm not staying. So, I do want, I respect your time 100%. And I understand that you want to go home and it's been a long day. But I really think that you and I both would like to get to the end of something. Absolutely. I welcome you. Absolutely. And I have no secret. It's so good to catch up with you. So you good. Too, I'm so Mohammed. happy. And thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. Absolutely. You too. This is thank only you. the first. 
Thank you too. Bye. Bye. Immediately after the call, Sydney turns to one of the film producers. You might not have seen what I saw. He left on a purpose. Purpose. He ended that. Because he knows what I'm going to ask him. The whole Canada thing. And you saw, he got exactly upset and I couldn't even go into it. That's how he behaves. For Sydney, it was the same as it had always been. But for Mohamedou, this round felt very different. Right after the call, we were in the backseat of a car driving to the hotel where I was staying in Mauritania. I'd been interviewing him for days at that point and had never seen him so giddy. She is, she is stuck. In, she is so frustrated because she couldn't interrogate me. And she wants to interrogate me now to have a closure. I'm not giving her that closure. She's dying to have answers. She's dying to, uh, to interrogate me. And she was kicked out. She was sent away. I am, she was there not to check on my health. She was there to put me behind bar for the rest of my life. I'm not giving her the satisfaction. You know, I'm letting her dying with frustration. That's my plan. Your revenge. I mean my sweet revenge, intellectual revenge. That was my plan. Bastian Bergner. Coming up, Mahamadou talks to the interrogator who literally haunts his nightmares the most. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's American Life, Myra Glass. If you're just tuning in, uh, today on our program, we are listening to these very unusual conversations between Mohamedou Salahi, a former Guantanamo detainee, and three of the Americans who were his captors at Guantanamo. In Mohamedou uh, Salahi's book, one of the most chilling sections is about an interrogator who we only knew as Mr. X. He shows up in the next part of our show, Act 2, Mr. X. Our reporter for this hour is Bastian Berbner. Here he is. During the summer of 2003, Mohamedou was interrogated in three shifts by three interrogators, up to 18 hours a day. Mr. X was the guy who came at night. Do you remember when you saw Mr. X for the last time? I never saw Mr. X, so there is no seeing him in the last time or the first time. What do you mean? Like, he was always in, uh, in his, like, overall, and... Uh, he had this mask, you know, that completely covered his face. Completely? Yeah, completely covered his face. You couldn't see anything. Even his eyes? He, everything, everything. It was like a bag he would put on his head. Or, or I don't know whether he could see even through it. But I could see his, the shape of his body, you know. And Can you describe it? Yeah, he was tall, skinny, muscular. Mr. X wore blue overalls, like a car mechanic. Black boots, black gloves, black ski mask, sunglasses. When he talked to Mohamedou, he called him by his prisoner number, 760. Night after night, he tried to break Mohamedou. He blasted heavy metal music and exposed him to strobe lights. He cranked up the AC until Mohamedou started shivering. He turned up the heat until he sweated through his clothes. He made him stand with his wrists chained to a bolt on the floor forcing him into a stooped position for hours. 
which was excruciating for Mohamedou. It was all part of the interrogation plan crafted specifically to break Mohamedou. Donald Rumsfeld signed off on it. The worst incident Mohamedou describes was a day in late August 2003, when a few men dragged him out of the interrogation room, put blackout goggles on his eyes, earmuffs over his ears, and threw him into a Humvee. They drove him around and beat him. He was bleeding from his head. They put him on a boat for a few hours. At one point, he heard people speaking in Arabic, as if he was going to be handed over to another country. What they had actually done was drive the boat around the Guantanamo Bay all day. At the end, they put him in a cell, built to maximize his isolation. No daylight, little sound, no objects of any sort. That's when Mohamedou broke. He started to produce all this information, so much that they got him a computer to type it all out. Mohamedou says the stuff he told them, all of it was bullshit. In fact, when the military prosecutor building a case against him learned that Mohamedou was tortured, he dropped the case. Mohamedou remembers that it was Mr. X who beat him the worst during the mock rendition. For all those years since, he considered Mr. X his worst tormentor. Mr. X is the one who, 18 years later, still wakes him with nightmares. John searched for Mr. X for years. And then, one day, he got a tip about a Facebook profile. It had photos of a guy, extremely muscular, like a bodybuilder. John sent him messages. Two years later, he agreed to a meeting, in a city hours away from where he lives. He looks a lot different now. He's still physically imposing, but the muscles are gone. He wears hipster glasses and his beard is graying. And just to stay the obvious, his name is not actually Mr. X. He let us film him for the documentary, but we agreed not to use his real name for the story. So who was Mr. X? So I, I take it you're not literally saying, who is me, Mr. X? Who is Mr. X? So Mr. X was the thing that comes at night that you don't want to have to talk to. So right, the, the first thing I did was, well, I need to strip away my humanity. I need to not look like a, a normal human being. And I did that by covering up. What other, what other elements did it have, you know, to create Mr. X? What other stuff did you need? <clears throat> well, from, from a theatrical perspective, there was, um, he had to be completely in control. And that was by design, to strip control from Slahi. Um, Slahi liked to be in control or, or try to take control of interrogations all the time. So one minute I could be very rational and then the next minute I could be completely enraged at the slightest comment, possibly even innocuous comment, didn't even have to make sense. Give me just a general sense of what the dynamic between the two of you was. There was hardly any dynamic. He was the boss. What do you mean? He was the boss. He was deciding when I sit down, when I stand up, when I have a chair, when, uh, when I write, when I don't write, when I go back to my room. He was calling all the shots. There was nothing. I was just an object in that relationships and I just accepted my fate. When John asked Mr. X if he wanted to speak to Mohamedou again, he said no. It's a complicated thing for him. 
he told John about it in the car. Yeah, what, why are you talking to us? I mean, like, you know, because other people didn't want to talk to us. You know, why are you talking to us? Because it's the right thing to do. Um, so, one, I, I want to... I, I don't want um, Mr. Slahi to have the sole voice of what occurred. But more importantly is, um, you know, when when I was there and I we were told at one point that we were at, at this historical, this historical point in American history, you know, that we were heroes and we were on the side of righteousness. But if you take the Slahi case alone, that's not what happened. We're not on the we're not on the right side of history on this one. So I want to put out for the record that we made mistakes, in my opinion, and people don't should never be treated that way, and. That that's created a lot of problems for me psychologically, and I told you before, you know, I had a basically a mental collapse over it. Unlike Sydney, who was an analyst, Mr. X was an interrogator. Guantanamo was his first time doing that job. He was in his mid-thirties and part of an elite military unit at Guantanamo called the Special Projects Team. There were eight people in all: interrogators and analysts. They only worked the most high-value detainees the most important of whom, at the time, was Mohamedou Slahi. The military thought he might have information that could lead to bin Laden or prevent the next big attack. Mr. X's job was to make Mohamedou talk. And the idea was you do that by being tough, really tough, using what they called enhanced techniques. Enhanced techniques means harsh interrogation techniques that today are outlawed, that today are illegal. So torture. Some would be considered absolutely, would be considered torture by today's standards, absolutely, yes. And what about your standards? Law. Yes, yeah. So yeah, you gotta understand, it's hard, man. It's hard to, uh, it's a hard thing to say. Wait, what's hard? That I was involved in something that's torture, right? That somebody was psychologically tortured. Now, these things are still being debated today. And so, Did you torture? Yeah, I mean, it's torture. When Mr. X returned home after Guantanamo, he started to really think about what he had been part of. He began drinking, retreated from his wife and kids. He had obsessive thoughts about mutilating himself. A doctor diagnosed PTSD. For Mr. X, this was the start of a process of self-examination. There is hardly a day, he says, that he doesn't think about Mohamedou. John tried to persuade Mr. X to talk to him. There was a film crew in Mauritania all set up in case he agreed. Mr. X was reluctant. He still thinks Mohamedou was a terrorist. And having read his book and a few interviews that Mohamedou had done, he got the sense that he is on a mission to rebrand himself from suspected terrorist to magnanimous forgiver. 
I think if I were to engage him in a conversation about this, that in a way I would be feeding into his brand that he's making himself now. And I don't feel comfortable with that. I really don't. They're in his garage. Mr. X says he needs to think about it. He goes over to work with some pottery clay, something he's been doing as a kind of therapy. A few minutes later, John tries again. You were going to do some art and think about making a phone call? <laughs> yeah, I just did the art. Can yeah. I have a second or what? Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, John. I'm just wondering. Why not? In for a penny, in for a pound, John. So Okay, all right. I'm um, trusting you on this. Yeah. Aaron, could you come? Wait a second. You could call him right now? Yeah, wait a second. Oh, my Lord. The producers quickly set up a call on a laptop yes. and hand it to Mr. X. Mohamedou is looking back at him from Mauritania, 17 years after they last met. He's seen photos of Mr. X before, but this is the first conversation they've had with each other where he isn't wearing a mask. Mr. Slahi. <laughs> How are you? How are you doing, sir? I'm not unwell. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. That's good. Thank you for asking. Yes, sir. Well, it's interesting. I was exceptionally reluctant to make this call because uh, I have a lot of uh, mixed feelings about the, the era and the things that happened. But I wanted to explain a couple things to you. Mr. X starts talking and takes control of the conversation. He doesn't stop for four minutes. And the thing he begins with isn't how the torture was wrong. It's about him, Mr. X, and how Mohamedou described him in his book. Mr. X says he wasn't the one who beat Mohamedou during the mock rendition, which, from my reporting, does seem to be true. And I was shocked and just floored that you perceived that I was one of the people that entered the room and inflicted the physical abuse upon you. I'm not sure why you perceived that. It does bother me greatly that anyone, but especially you, would think that Mr. X would do that. That's not Mr. X and that's not me in who I really am. You see... So you were right to be surprised that Mr. X would have done something like that, because I didn't. <laughs> um, I will tell you, um, another part that's difficult for me here talking to you <clears throat> is that I'm not convinced of your innocence, and I still believe, based on the information that I had received, that you are an enemy of the United States. But... I will say that no one deserved the treatment that you received, that we were misguided, and what we did was absolutely, without question, wrong. So, no one who's in, in no one in a, no democratic society, based on the values of America as I understand it, should have been arrested the way you were, brought to Guantanamo, treated the way you were, and kept as long as you were. That's all I can say. 
And I, you know, I just, uh, I hope you have a good life, man. Did you want to respond at all or? Uh, I guess so. Uh, first of, I have no reason to believe that uh, you're lying to me. I have no reason to believe that. All I can say is that that's what I perceived based on uh, your voice. I've been hearing for so many nights, so many late nights, so much with so much pain and suffering. What happened, happened, and I'm completely, if you did it or you didn't do it, I'm just saying that I completely forgive you or anyone who inflicts the pain. And yeah, uh, I, I, that's wholeheartedly because I want, I want to forgive myself and I want to live in peace with me. And yeah, I think everybody point. has to accept their actions and, um, and forgive themselves. So I want to make sure it's also clear. I'm not asking you for your forgiveness. I have to forgive myself. So that's okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and I know, and I knew you would know that. But in a strange way, I thought it was important for you to know that I know what happened to you. I I know how it happened. It sounds exactly like how you describe it, except for the fact that it was me and these other people. I never did any of that stuff. So that's, it's, you can believe it or not, it's fine. But, um, but I acknowledge that it occurred. Uh, so, no, it's okay. Thank you very much for acknowledging that. As to the assertion that I'm, I maybe, or I am the enemy of the United States, I can assure you, for better or worse, for what it's worth that I, I've never been the enemy to your country. I've never hurt anyone of your country. And for that matter, I never hurt any person ever, ever. And the facts of my case speak to that. Mr. X tells Mohamedou he believes he was released because the torture made his case impossible to prosecute, not because he was actually innocent. I just want to mention one thing to you. So if the United States torture people, they don't release them and they don't win cases because they were tortured. Case in point, KSM. KSM is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the man accused of being the mastermind behind 9-11. He was waterboarded 183 times in a secret prison and then brought to Guantanamo, where he remains today. And the people around yeah. him they were heavily tortured, and they are still in prison. So it's not like so the United let me, States... let me do this, because I'm not going to get into the greater policy decisions that are made above me and ab above you, you know what I mean? Um, I'm taking ownership of the things that I was involved in. The way Mr. X interrupts Mohamedou here, he does that several times during the call. Whenever Mohamedou brings something up that Mr. X doesn't want to talk about, he cuts him off. It's a tactic he used during the interrogations at Guantanamo to keep Mohamedou on point, keep him talking about the things Mr. X wanted to hear. The call lasts about 19 minutes. Mr. X speaks for about 14 of them. He seemed like a different person than before the call, when he was polite and considerate. It was like a switch had flipped inside him. 
John tries to change the dynamic by bringing up something he and Mr. X had talked about. If it's okay with you, I'm gonna send him a picture. John wants to send you the painting I did. I'd love to see his reaction. This is one of the paintings Mr. X made after he left the military. It was a portrait of Mohamedou, as he remembers him the day when he was beaten. Mr. X destroyed the painting after he made it. He says it was too upsetting to look at. But he has a photo of it on his phone. John texts Mohamedou the photo while they talk. So, uh, so is, how are you living now? So, are you married? Do you have kids? I'm not going to talk what about my family. I'm not going to talk about my family, man. I'm not going to talk about my family uh, or where I am or what I do or don't do. Um, it's just how it is, pal. Can you tell him that the, the painting? He said he sent the painting to you. Did you receive it yet? I have An image. It's on your, it's on your WhatsApp. In the painting, Mohamedou is in bad shape. He's bleeding from his nose and lip. Underneath the blackout goggles, his eye is swollen and bloody. Mr. X said in all his years, he had never seen anyone that terrified. Ah, I see. Ah, wow. This detainee looks much better than the actual detainee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. They didn't look very good that day. And that painting's not meant to make you, it's to reflect what happened to you. So if I had done the things, I wouldn't have painted that. <laughs> so. Anyway, I wish you good luck, man, wherever you are, As whatever you. you do. And you know, that's all I can tell you. And I completely, I completely, like I say, I forgive you. I, didn't, I don't need you to ask for any forgiveness. I got you. I That's a personal thing. Myself. I get it. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing the movie when it comes out. Thank you. Yep. Well, I really don't have anything else to say. Bye. Goodbye, Mr. Slott. Juice. Juice. And close it. What, what am I doing? Yeah. Bye. Mr. X turns to John. Are you happy? Mr. X wasn't happy. The way he sees it, it's a big deal for a former interrogator to talk to a guy he thinks was a terrorist and admit the way they treated him was wrong. But Mohamedou didn't seem to care. He just kept redirecting the conversation the same way he had done in Guantanamo. So then he found himself cutting Mohamedou off. It was like being Mr. X again, the guy who he worked so hard to get away from for years. It wasn't a good feeling. It wasn't a good feeling at all. I, was, I, mean, I, I mean, I was absolutely on the defensive going into it. Like, I, it, it is, I can't even describe it to you. I don't know about him, but I feel like we're inextricably locked in this, in a dance, a macabre dance that perhaps to our, to our dying day. In that moment, we weren't Slahi and who I am as a person. We really both kind of regressed. I really believe that's the case. And that's why I had the, the anger that was like coming up. And I, and I didn't like that. Do you fear that in this intellectual uh, chess game, as you, as, as you said, um, 
kind of who is winning the... the oh, he won. He won the chess game. He has been masterful. First of all, for weathering what we subjected him to. The worst that we could throw at him. The worst. To include stuff that should never have happened that is not allowed. He weathered 14 years or whatever, 15 years of confinement. He wrote a New York Times bestselling book. And most people hearing his tale now believe that he is completely innocent of anything that ever was alleged. And I don't think that that's accurate. Take nothing away from him. I would do exactly the same things. I respect his intellect, his strength of will, his ability to parlay this into something else. Good for him. Really. And I don't say that sarcastically. I mean it. Good for you. You know? And, and yeah, you won. You won that. But Mohamedou doesn't think he won. And he wasn't happy with how it went with Mr. X. How Mr. X dominated the call. I don't like monologues. Because when I went to monologue, I go to Friday prayers. And, and just the, the monologue that he kept on and on and on. And I was like uh, polite enough to listen to everything, but I don't want to listen to it anymore. You know, that's it. How did it make you feel? Weird. Weird, because we say you have a saying in my culture, Allah gave you one mouth and two ears. Do justice to your ears. <laughs> Would be up for watching uh, the conversation you had with him um, and, and kind of like going into that a little bit? No, I don't want. It, it was very bad conversation. I don't want to listen to it. You can listen to it. I'm not interested. Mohamedou got his wish to have a conversation with his captors where he was a free man. He wanted that for all kinds of reasons. Forgiveness, revenge, to control his own story. With Scott and with Sidney, he found that very satisfying. But with Mr. X, what he hadn't counted on was how hard it would be for him, for them, to find a new way to talk to each other. Bastian Berbner is a reporter for Zeit. If you speak German, uh, the 12-part podcast series that he made with John Getz is called Srahi, 14 Years in Guantanamo. John Getz's film, where we got the incredible audio that you heard today, is called In Search of Monsters. It is now being shown in many European countries, but has no American distributor yet. John is looking for a distributor. If you're somebody in the film distribution business, perhaps the streaming business, his contact information is on our website. I'm getting hung up on these certain conversations. You want to change my mind, but it's a waste of time. You say I'm different from the day that I met.
Well, our program was produced today by Dana Chivas. People who put together today's show include Elna Baker, Susan Burton, Sean Colga, Viva de Kornfeld, Damian Graves, Seth Lynn, Stone Nelson, Lena Masitsis, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Elise Spiegel, Laura Starcheski, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, and Chloe Weiner. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Paul Eric Heilboot, Ulle Fluga, the German public broadcaster NDR, and Sarah Koenig. Our website, thisamericanlife.org where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Plus, there are videos, there are lists of favorite shows, there's tons of other stuff there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. When I worked in the studio earlier to record today's program, Tori was there, sitting right at this microphone. I was like, Tori, I need to get in there. He was all, yeah, you will get your chance. But today, I'm running the show. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life.